Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I am the host of the Regenesance podcast. And today alongside me is Jason Rick with Rick's Ranch. Hey, Jason, how are we doing? Living the dream, man. The fall season is what brings everything that we're doing to fruition. So I'm just, I'm loving the cooler weather. I'm loving these fat beeves that we're butchering and delivering to our customers and these fat calves coming off the mountain. It's just, it's truly a blessing, man, to live where we live. So I'm doing fantastic. That's awesome. And as someone that's visited your your place, I can agree with all of that. It's such a gorgeous property. Surrounding areas just surrounded by the mountains. So I can only imagine what that's like every day. So I guess to really get started, were you born into ranching or what led you to Rick's Ranch? So I was not born into ranching. I was raised in town. Um, I always had a huge draw to agriculture. My maternal grandparents lived on a small farm in Olathe, Colorado. And my grandfather was raised on a sheep ranch over in the San Luis Valley. And so he kind of farmed the way that his parents and grandparents farmed, you know, the way that we farmed back before the industrial processes took hold. And I was the only grandchild of 27 grandkids that really showed any interest in agriculture as like the, the reality of it. A lot of my cousins like to come and ride horses and play with the baby calves and all of that stuff. But I really got into the work and kind of the um, the lifestyle behind it. And so I knew I always wanted to do it. So because we lived in town and I was raised in town, the livestock that I raised was rabbits um, because that's something we could get away with. And so I, I bred rabbits. I showed rabbits. I mean, I was 12, probably 12 years old when I started butchering rabbits to sell as for meat. And so I was always really drawn to, to feeding people and raising animals in a holistic way that, uh, that I could feed the neighborhood and, and feed people that enjoyed what we did. So in the back of my mind, I always wanted to, to farm. Well, I, I met this gal in high school and we started dating. And then when I got to meet her parents, um, they lived on a cattle ranch. They, they actually had moved here from California to escape the smog and the people and all this, this crap that was going on in California. And so they had a, a small cow-calf operation. And at that time, I didn't really think anything of it other than I enjoyed helping my father-in-law with the cattle. And so, you know, fast forward 15 years later, we did a stint in the Marine Corps, moved back. I went to work in the coal mines and by then they had sold all of their cows and they'd leased their property out. And so I convinced them to let me lease their place to kind of try and build it back up to what I thought it could be. So we spent, a, a you know, the, probably the first five years just fixing fence and in, in repairing irrigation infrastructure and just cleaning up a lot of stuff that needed cleaned up. I mean, I was working at the coal mine, had a good paying job. So I had money to to pay for materials and stuff and really kind of got it built up to where I wanted to. And so then I started raising and selling hay and inevitably you'd have hay that get rained on or have a problem that you couldn't sell, you know, for big money to the, to the horsey people. And so you'd have to try and sell it really cheap. Well, that was when I thought about maybe getting cattle. And that's actually when I really got into regenerative ag and how important it is to have animals on the landscape. Like that is the, the key to success, that interaction between herbivores and the soil microbes and how important that is. And so we spent about a year researching breed associations, marketability, settled on black Angus cattle. 
And so we were buying registered Angus seed stock and selling registered Angus bulls. And, and at one time we had a bull that didn't pass fertility. And so we castrated him and finished him just on grass and shared him with friends and family. And they said that that was the best meat that they had ever had and that we should probably do that. Like we, that should be a bigger part of our business. And I, and I had never even thought about it. You know, you have like this, um, the hype and, and the excitement of raising and selling registered Angus bulls, you know, and selling the top bull of that year and all of those things that's, that, that's appealing to people that are super, super competitive. But I realized that it wasn't viable and the bull market really mimics the cattle market. And so if we could transition more towards selling beef direct to consumer, then we would be price makers versus price takers like most cattlemen are in this country. So we started focusing on that and really focusing on those carcass genetics that can do well just on grass. And that's kind of taken us to where we are now. This year, I think we will butcher 34 beeves and sell direct to consumer. And so we've done two thirds of them already. I think there's only nine, I think there's 12 beeves total that haven't been butchered yet. So, and, and, and most of them already have deposits and they're spoken for. And so through this journey of regenerative ag, we've, we've been leasing more land and spending a lot of time helping other people fix up their places just through management and kind of changing the, their, their um, focus from the rape and pillage, continuous grazing type of management more to uh, intensive rotational grazing, doing some planned grazing at different times of the year to help stimulate different kinds of plants to grow and thrive. And then we also see the benefits in the health of our cattle herd. Uh, this year, we actually didn't do any vaccines at all whatsoever in our cattle. And we haven't, we haven't doctored a single calf for anything, foot rot, pink eye, respiratory, none of those things. We haven't doctored them for any of those things. So that's, that just really kind of shows that if you focus on management, you don't have to use a lot of these modern pharmaceutical, industrial, big ag inputs if you're managing for it. So. So that was, a, that was a lot of great stuff. Um, I guess to backtrack a little bit to make sure. So the first five years, you were mainly just building a foundation. Were you doing any soil management or anything like that? Yeah. Well, and so that's what we were doing. There was a lot of bare ground uh, because it had been overgrazed and there was a lot of broken irrigation infrastructure. You know, here where we are, we're at 7,000 feet elevation and we only get about six and a half inches of annual precipitation. So you have to irrigate to be able to grow grass, really. I mean, we have some dry land, um, perennial grasses that we graze very briefly, but for the most part, you have to irrigate to be able to grow grass. And some of the infrastructure had been broken and the previous leasee had just neglected it, but that didn't stop them from grazing cows on it. So what we were actually doing is I was letting some of our pastures that had strong mixed um, species go to seed, then I would harvest the hay and then roll that hay out. So I had a compost bed loaded with seeds of the stronger varieties of grasses and legumes, like some of the old original ranger alfalfa. And I would spread it out on those bare ground areas. And then I would bring, you know, a neighbor's cows in for a short period of time to eat it and stomp it into the ground and essentially reseed that land without actually having to till it in disc it and prep the seed bed and all that stuff. And so a lot of it was just, just 
fixing stuff up. We were harvesting some hay on some of the better fields, the fields that had had better maintenance and selling it and shipping it. I mean, the, the quality of hay that we raise here is a huge contributing factor to why the quality of our beef is what it is and how we're able to butcher younger than many grass finished operations just because the, the feed is so good and so high in sugars and high in protein that the cattle perform very well, um, almost as well as they would if someone had confined them in a feedlot, you know, and we're feeding them a, a total mixed ration. So we're able to get that beautiful white fat, the intramuscular fat, also known as marbling, and still butcher these beeves at 16, 18, 20 months of age. Um, whereas many grass-fed and finished people have to push it out to two months up to, or 24 months up to 30 months uh, just to get any sort of finish on their cattle. And so really for the first five years, we've sold some hay, but for the most part, it was just trying to, to heal the land. And that's also when we realized that without cattle, you weren't going to get, you weren't going to be able to heal it at the rate that it really needed. Yeah. So with that, then I guess we can get into regenerative agriculture as a whole, because I'm curious during those five years too, when, when did you first hear about regenerative agriculture and what made you want to move forward with implementing that into your ranch? Well, I mean, I had heard about it clear back to when I was in high school. And unfortunately, my ag advisor, who is a, a cow-calf conventional cattle woman, um, kind of poo-pooed a lot of that. Like it, 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 uh, it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't viable. It wasn't profitable. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. Well, I mean, she went to school at a land-grant university and taught a curriculum that was prepared by those type of people. And so when that's the background that you have, of course, when someone comes in and they're going to break your paradigm and what you've been doing for generations, obviously you want, you become very defensive. And so from what I thought it was, it was woo woo, just not realistic. And then I started reading and, and I'm one of those people that's, I mean, ADHD. When I get onto something, it's like, get out of the way because I'm going to just devour everything and, and learn everything. And so Unfortunately, a lot of what I read and what was printed in books may apply to Virginia or it may apply to South Dakota where, where they get rain because um, I tried implementing them as a, as a prescriptive uh, solution and it just, they just simply don't work. Our environment, environment here is so much more harsh and fickle and you have to be able to pivot just immediately like okay this we did this for a week it didn't work we immediately have to do something different otherwise we're going to be overgrazing or undergrazing or whatever it happens to be we're going to cause a problem that's going to take us some time to heal from and so what i realized is you have to build your own plan based on your own environment and then you have to engineer your cattle herd to meet the environment where you live and that's, that's, that's the amazing thing for us. And, and, you know, me having the skills and develop the skills to do artificial insemination and try bulls, you know, that are touted as like grass genetics and take high performance bulls that are, you know, top bulls in the, in the Angus breed for marbling and carcass traits and all those things and try a few of the straws of those semen in, in some of my choice cows to see if those pairings work or not. And oftentimes, Carcass genetics, according to the American Angus Association, are based on these 
total mixed rations that are fed in a fat feedlot at crazy ridiculous rates um, for a terminal cross, knowing that those beeves are gonna, only going to live 16 months of age. They'll be morbidly obese by then, and they're going to slaughter them anyways. So if you have, have heifers out of them, they don't have the structure necessary to hike in the mountains like our cows have to. In the rocky ground, their feet aren't any good for the rocky ground that we're in. You know, their udders hang down too low because they're so heavy, such heavy milkers that they get scratched in the oak brush and, and sagebrush. And so that's the thing for us is paying attention to that, you know, and paying attention to everything. You just look at the grass. Like right now, all of our cool season grasses are doing like a little quick flush. We got a couple of big rains. And it's just been warm enough for that cool season grass to really turn on and grow again. Well, a lot of people get really excited and they turn cows out on that grass. Well, that grass is trying to do the last little root storage. So it's going to send up enough leaves to capture that late um, Indian summer sun to make some sugar stores to pull it back in. So if you're grazing it right now, you're just sucking all the sugar out of the roots of that grass you really have to wait until it freezes and dies back a little bit because then it immediately pulls all the nutrients back into the roots for its winter stores and so it's 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 i see it all the time everyone's like oh man the forage is doing really good in that field let's turn out on it and then the next spring it's gunpowder dry and it takes forever to come back again so you just have to be number one you have the experience number two you have to understand plant physiology enough to take a deep breath, don't don't get excited to where you're going to hurt yourself for the next spring. Take a step back and say, okay, we're going to stay on this this warm season, dormant, crunchy, dry grass for another two weeks till we get a good freeze. Then we'll let that grass go to bed, and then we'll go graze it because it still will be fantastically palatable, but you won't hurt the grass for the next year. And that's where that observational science comes in, right? Grandpa taught me, you got me, he says, Mijito, you got to pay attention to the soil and the grass and the animals. You just have to, you, I mean, don't pay attention to what, you know, the scientists are selling you. You're, you're smarter than they are. You don't need a test to tell you that. You just have to pay attention. And he's, he was totally right. Um, and that's, that's one of the hardest things to teach because now everyone wants a pill or a potion or a prescription of like, if you do it like this, you'll be successful. You have to get back to what our ancestors did, whether it was the hunter gatherers, whether it was the early settlers, whatever. I mean, if you messed up, you died. Your whole family died. You couldn't, you couldn't feed your family right now. You can just Uber eats and, and you'll have sustenance, you know, and that's, that's one of those things that there's people that are longing for that, but they want it for free on YouTube. They're not willing to either invest the time or invest the money to get that real education that can make them successful. And unfortunately, when when the when the the bull manure hits the fan, there's going to be a lot of hungry people that probably aren't going to last very long because number one, they don't have the skills. Number two, they just don't have the intestinal fortitude. They don't have the uh, personal awareness. They don't have the accountability. Um, they're just going to expect for someone to come in and. and and save them. And it's just, it's just not going to happen. And that's so true about the famine too, because I read the book dirt, the erosion of civilizations to where it took the historical context of conventional agriculture with heavy tillage and, and monocropping 
and from ancient Rome to ancient China, all kinds of different civilizations that had famines that just wiped out villages <clears throat> from using these practices. And so I think that's a good lead way into explaining what exactly is regenerative agriculture and how is this a really good way to, to really help rebuild our soil and rebuild the nutrient dense food that we used to have. Well, and that's, that, that's a great thing because re regenerative ag is different to different people. But how I define it is, you know, the, the buzzword used to be sustainability and sustainability means to stay the same. So when we're doing heavy tillage and we're blowing away a sheet of papers worth of topsoil every time we put a different piece of tillage in a field, you know, because oftentimes you go in with a heavy moldboard plow or a chisel plow and it blows dust away. And then you go back over that two, three, four, five times with some sort of disc or vertical tillage. And then you go back through it with a cultipacker to prepare the seed bed. Every single trip that you go across that field, you're blowing another paper thickness of topsoil away. And it took a millennia for microbes to digest rock to make that soil that's there or like in the grasslands a millennia of the interaction between grasses and ruminants to eat digest stomp poop pee regrow wash rinse repeat for thousands and thousands of years and so sustainable agriculture means going to stay the same which means we're going backwards Right. Every time you do tillage, you're going backwards. Your topsoil is blowing away or it's washing down into the rivers and contributing to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. It's just that's what's happening. So then came regenerative, which means to regenerate or to build or to improve. And so that's where we start mimicking nature in our practices with the technology that we use now. The biggest one for me is electric fencing. You know, I can keep in 1,500 pound cows with a half inch strip of electric fence and a 12 volt solar charger, and I can move them around in a way that mimics the way that the bison herds went across the grasslands. So they'll be in a place and they will mow it and poop and pee on it and just stomp it down. And then they'll go to the next place and that place will have a, a long rest. If it's an irrigated pasture, we're shooting for about 30 to 45 days, depending on the species of grasses and legumes that are in those paddocks in the um, perennial natives. Oftentimes we'll graze it for two or three weeks and then it will have a full year's rest because those plants are much more susceptible to stomping and overgrazing. They're a lot higher quality at times because they are what will thrive and survive in our tough environment, but they don't have the tons per acre that our improved mixed cool season and warm season uh, pastures do. And so we are essentially sequestering carbon in the form of the roots of those plants and then the litter that we leave behind when we were grazing them. And, and so we're also using the cattle as a land tool 
in some of these pastures that had gotten really tight sod cover on them. The only way to incorporate other species would be to plow it up. But what I found is if I take and spread um, various varieties of clover ahead of the cows, and then I graze it really heavy with cattle, the two-toed biped feet of the cows actually push that um, seed into the soil and then they mow the grass, which then knocks down the competition. So then it gives you opportunity to get sunlight on the soil, warm the soil as well as help that um, clover germinate. And then we irrigate it as soon as we pull the cows off. And so I've been able to improve. And so legumes like clovers and alfalfa are nitrogen fixer. They're pulling nitrogen out of the soil or out of the air, putting it into the soil. And it's actually not physically in the soil, it's in the nodules on their roots, which then the grasses that live next to them share. So they, they actually trade nutrients with each other. They will, they will trade nitrogen from one for sugars from the grass or vice versa. And so you have these complete pastures that just get deeper, darker green color and the grasses are healthier and grow better. And I didn't have to start a single tractor. I have a small handheld seed spreader and I'll go spread four or five, six pounds of uh, clover seed and then we'll graze it. And, and there's some of those pastures where it's almost to the point where people talk about, oh my gosh, it almost looks like the clover is choking out the grass. And that's not the case. What it is, is you have this magical symbiotic relationship that's happening between the, the grass and legumes. And so they all kind of like different temperatures and different moisture levels. So they kind of interact at different times of the year. So at one time of the year, you're going to have way more grass. And then when you graze the grass off, then you'll have way more clover. And so depending on when I have tours or I have visitors looking at it, it may be a heavy grass time, maybe a heavy clover time, but the cattle perform so much better because it's they have this like actual salad bar in front of them versus just the varieties of grass or just the varieties of legumes. So I know you mentioned uh, you you said heavy or planned rotational grazing and and I think heavier intense rotational grazing. Can you just explain what those are and why you do that on your ranch as well? Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons why you do that. And and this is what I use to try and pitch the idea to my conventional cattlemen. Because when you're using managed intensive rotational grazing, so managed just means that someone's doing it um, and that you have a plan. Like you take your land and you map it out in sizes of paddocks by acres and you and you match the number of cattle that are going to be on those acres together to get the best utilization without overgrazing, but also not underutilizing. And so the reason that you do that is because oftentimes on many of these pastures by year two, I can almost double the number of cattle that that piece of property can support. Wow. Because typically what people do is they do what's called continuous grazing. So they turn 40 head in on 80 acres and they just leave them there all year round. Well, what they do is cattle are just like children. They go eat all of the ice cream first. If you turn them loose to eat whatever they want, they go eat all the the most delicious, most nutrient dense, the best stuff first. 
And then they start eating the crappier stuff, the more coarse stuff, whether it's a Johnson grass or whether it's a reed canary grass, some of these um, brambles and other stuff that they don't particularly like, but they will eat if that's all that's left. Well, by the fourth and fifth day, that ice cream, the really highly palatable grass is starting to grow again. Well, then the cows realize that and they go bite that for a second time. So then it really knocks that grass back. Whereas if you can move cows into a new paddock and they know we're only going to be here for three days, we got to eat everything we can. They eat until they're full, then they lay down and ruminate. If there's a shady spot, they'll go lay in the shade and ruminate, you know, and that's where they're chewing their cuds, swallowing, you know, spitting some up again, chewing up again. Their giant rumen is, you know, mixing stuff around to get everything out of it they can. And then they get back up and they do it again. Um, so, so what that does is that makes them graze everything fairly uniformly, whether it's the ice cream, whether it's the cardboard carton that it came in. That's, that's one of those things that Salatin talks about is like, eating the ice cream and the cardboard box that it came in. And, um, and so then when you move them to the next pasture, it's the same thing again. And oftentimes you'll have different species in different paddocks. And that's one thing that I found, like the, the paddocks that have oak brush, like if cattle eat too much oak leaves, it's going to be poisonous to them. But there are times when they need whatever's in it. Like they're, they're, they're medicating themselves for something. Maybe they have an upset stomach or maybe they're a little short on protein or whatever it happens to be, you'll see them go into a pasture, they'll eat till their belly's full, and then they'll go find oak brush and they'll pull a handful of leaves off and chew them up and go lay down. Or the same thing, they'll go to a Russian olive and they'll reach up just as high as they can with their tongue and pull some of those leaves down and chew them. Like, the, you know, it's almost like, oh boy, I, I ate too much. I need something that's, you know, whatever it happens to be. And, and I, I can't explain that other than that's what I see. That goes back to the yeah. observational science. I don't know what their, I don't know what their blood work is telling me that they need or they're in excess, excess or deficit, but that's just how they do. And then they go lay down and ruminate. And so, so what we're doing is rapid clipping, mowing, and then because what the grass wants to do is it, its whole purpose in life, life is to reproduce. So you mow everything short, you move to the next place. It's going to have this explosive growth to want to put seed heads on. So it's going to put all of this energy into leaves and growing seed heads. You let it essentially go to maturity because then once it makes seeds, it's like, OK, I'm, I'm good. I can start building roots again. So then you're putting taking all of that uh, gaseous nitrogen out of the air and sunlight and you're shoving it down in the roots as or in the soil as a form of carbon as a carbon store and then you just do that cycle every 30 to 45 days where where you're taxing that grass and then you're giving it enough time to regenerate and grow and as you trim it the roots trim themselves so they die back with all that carbon, that carbonaceous material stays in the soil. So then you're opening the pores of the soil, which then allows more oxygen to flow down to the soil, pathways for microbes, pathways for irrigation water or rain. And so you're doing a, a super rapid version of what would have happened in the Great Plains essentially once a year. And we're doing it two, three, four cycles throughout the summer. And then you can actually see through soil analysis and also um, t 
tons of forage because we'll we'll do a, a one yard clipping and weigh how much forage we're producing. And we've just increased incrementally, you know, over the last six years on some of these pastures that I've been using this practice on. And then also the the flesh condition of the cattle is just very evident. The, the girls are so fat, you know, they're waddling around. When they go to the next uh, <laughs> pasture, you know, the fat rolls on their tail heads, you know, or it's it's pretty amazing. And that's, and it continues to get better but we're also working on genetics at the same time. Like what genetics work for us in, in the, our management practices and also what looks the best, like what, what do the ribeyes look like? What's the marbling and what's the back fat on the New York's and all of that stuff. So that's, we're working together and it just seems to be, I mean, and that's, I mean, we're, we're weaning calves and we're going to have some, we're going to have some high 800 pound steers that we'll wean this year. And the mountain forage is the is the driest that I've ever seen it. We typically have a monthly, perfectly timed rain on our on our high elevation nine thousand plus foot pastures, and I think we've only had two in five months, and it's it's super dry. But wow. but through genetics, our, our our calves are looking really good this year. So that's great. So with whenever you're strategizing behind. Uh, the plan rotational grazing for your property. How did you figure out the acreage for each paddock? How many paddocks in total? And then the length of how long you'd keep the cows on one paddock before moving. How did you go about all of that? A lot of that is experimentation because <clears throat> it's one of those things that I found is if I, if I'm in a paddock and I look, and I'm like, Oh, I could probably do another day. I, I just need to move them. Oftentimes, and and often, and the other thing too is it's based on by the fourth day, you have your desirable plants are trying to regrow, and so typically I don't want to stay any longer than four days in a paddock unless it's this time of year and I'm in a paddock that has a lot of dry, crunchy, um, already gone dormant grass then I'll just grind it right down. Number one, there's a fire hazard danger in that really tall grass. Number two, um, I have to either graze it, stomp it, or burn it. And because it's been so dry, I'm deathly afraid of burning. So I'll keep the cattle in there, even to the point where they'll, they'll start showing a little bit where they don't have good rumen fill. If you look on their on their sides, you know, right below their um, backbone, there's a little triangle spot. And it's like behind their floating ribs and in front of their hip. And that's, you want to try and keep that smooth. If that's dished in a little bit, that means they don't have good rumen fill. So that means they're not getting enough uh, material in for it to be full, that they're going through their full ideal um, digestive process. I'll actually run them a day into not having rumen filled just to stomp as much of that dry um, oxidized grass down close to the, the soil, knowing it'll be the last time we're on it and it'll get snowed on and it'll have green uh, the, the green up flush before we're even back on it again. 
And so a lot of it's just experimentation. So we start with a four day window and then we have to, to build our paddock sizes to the number of cattle that we have in that herd. And right now we're running our replacement heifers as one herd and then all of our mature cows as another herd. And that's mainly because I'm using uh, calving ease genetics, smaller birth weight bulls on my replacement heifers. And I'm using a younger bull. So this way I can keep closer eye on him to make sure he's not lame in the back foot. Because, of course, if he's lame in the back foot, he's not going to get up and breed cows. I'm going to need to change him out with another bull. So that way I can keep closer eye on them. And then I can also see which of those replacement heifers is performing the best in our management practices. The ones that always look full and slick and always have good room and fill and have that fat on their tail head. I'm noting that with the idea of that's the lineage I want to keep. So if I decide I want to flush a cow to, to raise a whole bunch more calves of hers, you know, she'll go on the list of, okay, if we want to flush this cow, take OO sites off of her, put them in recips and um, exponentially build those genetics, we can do that. The ones that are Fence jumpers, like the crazy, you know, what's that are always on the wrong side of the fence. It seems like they get on a different list. Um, and it, it typically is a trip to the sale barn or to freezer camp, <laughs> depending on how pissy they are. Um, and then you have the ones that just, they always look a little bit off. And honestly, yeah. I think there's probably something just, there's, there's something. It's either genetics. It's either they got into something that they didn't like and it's held them back or whatever, that they just always don't look as good. They're maybe rough coated or they're kind of bony. That that makes another list like, okay, we sure as hell aren't going to keep a heifer calf out of her. And she goes on the list like she may, because oftentimes they won't breed back as a second calver. Like there's enough wrong that when they have a calf and that suckling calf is pulling them down, their nutrition is poor enough that they won't cycle and they won't breed back anyways. We'll all know that ahead of time. I'm like, well, we're going to be sure and preg check her before they go to the mountain because she may not be, she may be open. Um, and so then we'll keep her back and keep her in the fat pen and finish her out and feed her as a butcher heifer um, as opposed to sending her to the mountain with the rest of the mature cows that next year. So, and then in our, our mature cows, of course, they're pretty much on coast. They, they've already calved once. They know what they're doing. They know the rotation of what pasture they start in, where they end up, and what time of year they need to come back. And so, and then they're almost always all bred before they go to the mountain. So depending on what bulls I'm using, I'll pull those bulls and I'll take and lease those bulls out to other ranchers who maybe only have a few cows and they can't justify spending the kind of money that we do on the quality of bulls that we buy. And that gives me an opportunity for to help them improve their herds, get more miles on those bulls so they can actually pay for themselves other than just the cows that they're breeding for us and keep them fit. Because after the cows all get bred, those bulls go lay in the shade and they get so fat which is hard on them. Whereas if they're out breeding cows all the time, they, they stay more fit and then you have less problems and their and their fertility is better. I mean, we have a bull that will turn 10 this winter 
this is, I think, uh, December, January, January, and he's still breeding cows. He breeds, he bred 35 cows for me. He went and bred 25 cows for a neighbor of mine. And now he's breeding 15 cows for another neighbor. And, um, his temperament is fantastic. When I show up with a trailer, he practically runs to the trailer to jump in because he knows there's going to be cows to breed on the other end of that trailer ride. So he's, it's, and he's, he's over 2,000 pounds. He's a bull that wow. we collected and I've sold semen all over the Western United States on him. And, and he makes some, some fantastic calves. So I'm curious with uh, talking about just all the grasses and whatnot, I'm assuming that your cattle are, are they 100% grass fed and finished? 100% grass fed and finished. We don't use any grains at all whatsoever. One thing that I had experimented last fall is I planted some hay grazer, which is a um, sorghum Sudan hybrid. And so there's a four acre field on one of the ranches that I leased that the previous landowner had grown Roundup Ready corn that he would chop for silage. And so it even it doesn't even grow weeds that well because he had, it had been sprayed with Roundup. And so uh, it was barren and bare. And so because I don't like bare ground, because Mother Earth does n never wants to be naked ever, right? So you get weed encroachment like crazy. I I um I didn't even disc it. I just drugged the drill across it and planted this hay grazer last year. So it makes like a seed head on the top of it, but not enough that you were going to get much, if any, nutrition. And it grows like eight feet tall. And so I planted that more or less as kind of a land um, mitigation tool and also just for some some cheap forage for those cows that was going to stick up out of the grass and also just to see what what the, that land could do like if it would even grow at all because I, I was nervous that it wouldn't grow at all because it had been planted in roundup ready corn and had been sprayed that you know because roundup a glyphosate is a, is a chelator it like locks up nutrients in the soil that's that's how it works and so I was afraid that there would be no uptake in nutrients and it just wouldn't grow at all. And I was very surprised that it actually did very well. Uh, and I had planned on planting all of it again this year, but the summer just got away with me we, from it. We had a great irrigation year, so I'm putting up more hay than I had in the last three years because we've been in such a terrible drought. And so just putting up hay, hauling hay, um, and then also, you know, doing lots of communication with customers and recording podcasts and all of those things, just trying to get the, the, the word out so more people can understand what we're doing. It just got away from me. And so um, I didn't plan it. I still have the seed. I'll, I'll try and do it this spring um, because it's it grows. Well, we planted it. I cut some of it just because I needed a road to get through that field. And the regrowth was taller than the original plants were. So it literally, the row that I cut with the swather was nine feet tall. And the, the surrounding field was only seven and a half feet tall. So if I get it planted, I'll probably cut it for hay, 
once and then graze it after that. But other than that, we don't do any grain supplements. We we had been using some of the um, American grass-fed certified protein tubs because we were feeding straw. We were mixing straw and alfalfa hay together. And some of the cattle just, they had a hard time on that because the, the winters were so hard and the drought was so bad and our feed quality was so bad. But if you actually crunch the numbers, it, it we were better off just buying more better quality hay than trying to feed those protein tubs. And so we've just gone completely away from any tubs at all. Um, and just buying better quality hay when we need to buy hay. So on the, <clears throat> on the topic of grain and grass fed and finished, there's so many different ways that our agriculture has gone about it. So with the factory farming, they don't eat a whole lot of grass and they're just in confinement lots being fed with whatever God knows what to just fatten them up as quickly as possible. You have the conventional ranchers that <clears throat> they do grass fed, but they'll either finish on grain or, or still supplement with grain. And then there's you where it's 100% grass fed and finished. I guess, can you just explain the differences and why you do grass fed and finished and, and yeah, just the details of all that. So pro there, probably the biggest reason why we do grass fed and finished is because I want to be unplugged from the rest of the system. If I can control every aspect of it, there are no questions that I can't answer for my consumers. And that's my ultimate goal is to have the, the most beautiful, handsome, fit, intelligent consumers. Um, those are the people that support what we do. And I want to support them in my practices. When you're feeding stuff that you buy from somewhere else, you don't know exactly what has gone into it, what it's been sprayed with, what the drift from the neighboring field has drifted onto that. You just don't know. And so when you can control that and you know exactly where it's coming from, then you can guarantee what is and what isn't in the beef. When you're buying truckloads of dried distillers grains from a ethanol plant or you're buying cold candy from a, a, a Mars um, candy factory, or when you're buying pelletized chicken feathers from a Campbell soup factory, you know, and mixing it in your total, total mixed ration, you don't know whatever, because I mean, inevitably trash goes into that and it gets ground into it. You know, we're talking about microplastics and all of that stuff. If you can just get away from it, then you don't have to worry about that. And that's why we do what we do. The other thing, too, is there's there's a lot of scientific data that the phytochemicals that are expressed in grass, that are expressed in vegetables, especially leafy greens that we talk about from a health standpoint, whether it's kale, chard, spinach, all of those things, the phytochemicals that they express that are so good for your health. If you have cattle that have only ever eaten forage, whether it's grass, legumes, you know, alfalfa, hay, that those positive chemicals are expressed in their meat as well and in their fat. And 
So if you can eat a steak and get the same benefits or similar benefits as eating a salad, why in the hell would you not eat a steak instead of eating a salad? Um, the other thing is we are all part of a larger microbiome. And so if you're eating beef you're, you're, or pork or fish or eggs or whatever it happens to be that is raised in the environment where you live, you have all of the positive implications of being in part of that microbiome together. And so that's why we focus on our state of Colorado and we don't ship beef out of state because I want to feed everyone that's in our local community so they get all of the benefits. And because I'm very community oriented and Granted, with social media and podcasts and things like that, we can reach a lot more people. I still focus on my community as my number one focus because when everything goes sideways, and I'm not saying if, I'm saying when, we all have to be able to rely on our neighbors for food security as well as physical and property security. And so those people who support me know. I will support them in a time of need, which I've done my whole life. That's the thing about living in a small community. And so that's why we do that. Whereas if you're buying shipped in feedstuffs and feeding your cattle in a feedlot, number one, cows were never, they were never made or they didn't evolve, depending on what your school of thought is to eat anything other than what grows out of the ground. They weren't, they weren't designed to eat candy ground up. They weren't designed to eat, you know, bakery byproducts. And they weren't, they weren't designed to eat all of that stuff. And if you look at the chemical process that has to take place in their rumen for them to be able to do it, it's an automatic inflammatory response. It's just like if you ate something bad and your body is like, oh, shit, we're in trouble. And you have this, you, your temperature rises, you have this inflammatory response. That's what's happening to them for the entire time that they're eating grains. Sure, part of that inflammatory response is a, a survival mechanism of storing fat, Oedipus fat, um, which is where a lot of that fat comes from is part of an inflammatory response and excessive calories. The other thing is our cows have to walk around. They have to walk around and find their own dinner. It isn't brought to them in a feed truck. And so just like humans that get exercise, they are more fit. They live longer. They're healthier. Therefore, their tissues are healthier as well. Whereas if you're in a feedlot or even if you're in a big grass trap and you're being fed grain, you know, pasture raised grain finished, which I hear a lot. It's the same as a feedlot. It's just not in a concrete feed bunk. They're in a field with a feed bunk in the middle of it that the grain truck comes out to. Um, Grass-fed and grass-finished is healthier. Like the animals are living a healthier life. They're not morbidly obese, suffocating on their own fat until they waddle into a, a slaughter facility to be killed. Um, so so for, for all of those reasons. And I can raise, well, in a, in a good year, I can raise all of the feed that I need to feed all of my cattle and all of my fat steers and fat heifers. Um, 
Unfortunately, three out of the last five, it has been so dry that number one, I mean, we sold half of our cows to be able to buy enough hay to feed the other half and they have just been buying a lot of hay. And when nobody has hay, hay is super expensive. And so that, so if you can do a break even like we have for the last three years, you're just happy that you're able to survive. Whereas this year we've been able to raise enough hay of our own. We'll see at the end of the year, whether we break even or not. But um, the more that you can control, the better you chance you have of success just across the board. So with <clears throat> the inflammation, whenever they consume grains, that's just with any grains. It doesn't even matter if it's um, non-GMO, uh, homemade grain, it's still inflammatory for them. Yeah, because so if you look at the way the, the rumen of a cow works, you have this giant vat of microbes and they have evolved to take uh, the coarse materials in grass, the lignins, and break them down and extract the carbohydrates and the proteins. The biggest reason that cattle need a high protein feed or a protein supplement is because the turnover of bacteria necessary to digest that coarse material needs a ton of protein because they're a living critter. They're, you know, they're living bacteria in the gut and their life cycle is so fast that they need protein to replicate fast enough to be able to keep up with the volume of coarse material that the cows are digesting. So when you bombard that with too much sugar, it changes the pH and essentially kills all of those or a good portion of that, those bacteria that were there and have evolved to digest lignin. And then it has to go through this full growth cycle of modifying the bacteria to be able to even digest whatever the grain stuff is. So all of that stuff is essentially, excuse me, too much sugar. And you have this um, oxidative stress that happens, which a lot of times cattle get super sick. And so that's why for a long time, as soon as a calf would come into a feedlot, it would get uh, prophylactic antibiotics because they knew they were going to start ramping up you know, they started just a little bit of grain and then they ramp up to where they're at 35, 40, 50 pounds of grain per head per day and to push it because they're they're on a time schedule. Like they're, they're headspace in a feedlot bin. They need to be able to get the calves in there, get them to a certain weight and get them to the butcher just as fast as they can. And the faster they can do that, the more money they make. Whereas for us, I mean, we're I call it hand finishing, like our fat steers are at a, a, a ranch that we lease and the, the caretaker is a retired dairyman and he just loves having cows around. And so he, he, he can watch the cattle. He moves them through his rotational grazing plan according to what his priorities are and his priorities of rate of gain. He says, if we can make two pounds per day rate of gain on the pastures that we have, he says, I'm totally happy. And he can also see if something has a problem, he'll call me and says, hey, ear tag number, blah, 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 has a limp. Do you want to come look at him? So I'll come look at him. Oftentimes they have a stick or a rock or something stuck between their toes. No big deal. We have yet to have any of them that we've actually had to treat for anything. Number one, because we're being moved all the time. Number two he is overseeding 
more diversified plant species. So by mimicking nature and then him spending the money on spreading seed, the diversity of these pastures are getting better and better and better all the time. So the cattle are getting everything that they need just from the the grass and a a block of trace mineral salt. And so um, I don't even know where I was going with that. (laughs) That's fine. So my next question would be on that. So going back to how I was saying, there's just levels to where the bottom of the barrels, the industrial factory farm confinement lots, because like you're saying, they feed them Skittles, rubber tires. It's disgusting what they do because it's just trying to get them as fast as possible, like you said. So if someone that's listening wants to try to buy beef from a local rancher, what are some questions that they would need to be thinking about asking in terms of grass and grain finish, but other questions? Um, Because there might be trade-offs too. Not everyone might have access to 100% grass-fed finished beef. So yeah, whenever they see these local ranches, what are some things they should be asking and looking for when they visit? You know, that's an interesting question. And that's actually one thing that I didn't talk about in our, in our, our last subject is a lot of parts of the country have a hard time gray, um, growing the quality of forage that enables them to actually finish their cattle just on grass. And if they do, those cattle wind up with that super yellow fat that then kind of has this, a lot of people kind of um, term it as gamey smell when you cook it. And that's that, that yellow stuff is the good stuff. That's, that's the keratin and that's the, the phytochemicals. But because the grass is so poor of quality, and when I say poor of quality, it's washy, which means it has a lot of water and not a lot of nutrients. And number two, it's super low in protein. And a lot of that's because in a lot of places, they've, they've mined all the nutrients out of the soil. So there's no nutrients available for that grass to uptake for it to be high, high enough quality. And so in a lot of places, Texas... Is a, is a perfect example of that. And all in the South and East, their grass is, is, is not as good. I mean, I could venture to say that it's garbage, but it's as good as they can grow for what they're doing, right? And what the environment is. And it's way easier for them to grow grass. When it rains all the time, I mean, they say they have a drought when it hasn't rained in a week, you know, and, and for us, if, if we get rain once a month, we're ecstatic. Um, and so oftentimes, especially those consumers there, number one, they're used to the Nebraska, Texas feedlot beef in the grocery store with that perfect white fat. And so they're going to have a, a hell of a hard time unless they're just committed to the nutrient qualities of that grass finished beef from where they're from. And that's hard to, that's hard to do because I compete directly with the grocery stores. And so my presentation has to be on par with what they could buy at the grocery store. Um, so for, for those folks, I mean, a couple of questions are, are these cattle born on your place? Right? Because then, then you know that this person, the rancher or farmer, because most of the Eastern guys are like, I'm, I'm a cattle farmer. I'm not a cattle rancher. I live on a farm. I don't live on a ranch. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, 
were these cattle born on your place? Um, what is your vaccination protocol? Do you use antibiotics? Um, and then what do you feed your cattle? I mean, and if they can't answer all of those things or they're, or they won't, you probably need to go somewhere else because for me, 100% transparency is what, that's the, one of the pillars that I'm, that our business is built on. Our ranch model is built on. I want informed consumers and I want to be the person that they can go to if they have any questions about anything about agriculture and about what we do. And oftentimes you're going to get my opinions, which is oftentimes off of what maybe they heard on the news or maybe what a land grant university um, information said, you know, what, whatever extension, the big national uh, alphabet soup organizations, you know, oftentimes promote something different, but I just tell people, this is what we do. This is why we do it. It works for us. And this is why it works for us. And this is how we're making it better. And that's not going to fit for everyone because many people won't work as hard as I do. They would much rather sit in a, a tractor that's got, you know, a 30 foot or a 30 road corn drill, you know, and a 24 foot header combine and grain carts and, and all of that stuff. Um, with a guaranteed insurance check if the crop doesn't make a crop. Whereas for me is if I screw up and we have a major problem, I lose a bunch of calves. I don't, there's no subsidies for that. There's no insurance for that. It's just, I screwed up and now I got to figure out how to make, how to pay the bills. And um, so, so as for a consumer, like the more you read, the more you learn and the more diversified your, um, mentors are and the, and the signal is that you get the there's truth in all of it right there may be a sliver here a sliver there a sliver here but at, as a intelligent person you can kind of pull them all together and you're like oh this i see why this is i mean because if you look at the food pyramid or now it's my plate and what they're promoting that you eat. And you can look at the graph that they say that, you know, like sugar breakfast cereals healthier for you than steak. Does that, how, how can that be real? How can that make sense with, for anyone, you know, like, let's think about this. Oh, it's because American corn growers, lobbyists and American sugar lobbyists have the most money to go around to, to then help promote their goals, which is going to help them sell more of that stuff into the system versus, um, let's say, like the sheep men trying to promote lamb. I mean, because I feel this, the worst for them because they're the smallest voice and JBS has squeezed them out, you know, JBS got a 40 something million dollar um, COVID relief and they turned around and bought a, a coal U processing facility and a coal cow processing facility, kicked all of the American producers out of it and started just funneling in cattle from overseas and sheep from overseas that they can buy for pennies on the dollar with who knows what unsavory uh, animal husbandry practices you know, and and at the whole the same time, just killing the American cold cow 
um, slaughter and the American sheep, you know, uh, you slaughter. And so, so it's just, it's constantly, there's more to it than meets the eye. And it has to be like guys like us that are willing to stand up, even with the bullseye on our back saying, that's the crazy SOB out there on Fruit and Mesa that's talking all of this craziness about this and that and that and the other. But I'll tell you what, my customers call me, text me, send me pictures of their steaks, their kids, their, their babies with a ribeye, you know, uh, bone, sucking on the bone and all of that stuff. And they're like, this is the best we've ever felt. This is the most flavorful, most tender, blah, 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 meat that we've ever had. You have a customer for life. And that's what that's what gets me up in the morning to do it again, right? One of the things I'm most excited about this year is this spring, I bought a full tank of, of dyed diesel, knowing with as much hay as we were going to make, I was probably going to have to buy more diesel. But through our practices, I still have diesel in that tank. So, so I'm able to run less runtime on equipment, do more grazing, let the cows do the work to where I don't have to haul all of that forage in and then haul it back out. Like I've saved some four foot tall, coarse, dry grass that I'm just going to strip graze with my dry cows after we wean. And I didn't have to put it up as hay. Sure, I wanted to. All of my experience from generations of stacking hay you know, as a, as a high school kid for all of the farmers and ranchers was like, you got to hay that and put it in the hay barn. You got to hay that, put it in the hay barn. I mean, it's just, if you don't put it up now, it may not be there. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, actually, it's still there. I drive by it every day when I go check cows and I'm just run another quarter mile of electric fence and let the cows put it up and same thing again and again and again. And so being able to do that and see how it works and how anybody can do it if they really put their mind to it and you could, that's a, that's a bottom line expense, diesel fuel, boom. And we just reduce that by half and, and everyone else can too. And, and so then I can pass those stories on to our customers as well. Like, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We're, we're, we're saving the planet by sequestering more carbon. And we're also saving the planet by not burning as much diesel. And, and that's just, it just feels good. It's like, okay, we're, we're heading in the right direction. I've been at it for a while. I don't have anything. I can't say that I figured anything out, but we're working towards getting better every year. Yeah. And I second the notion of whenever you're saying that you get text messages from your customers raving about that, because that makes me think about whenever I worked on a farm in rural PA, I ended up becoming a farmer's market guy and we did four a week. One of them being you had to wake up at 4.30, drive an hour set up an hour to get ready by 8 a.m. So absolutely exhausted, but having those conversations with those folks, just raving about, so we grew all kinds of things, but one of them was shiitake mushrooms that I guess were really good compared to others because people would just come just for that. And it's very fulfilling. Um, that's the most fulfilled experience I've ever had. And I was only there for a little bit. I wasn't there from the very beginning of planting everything. And I mean, like for example, having the, the calves, be born and going through that whole process i can only imagine uh yeah just after all that excruciatingly tough and stressful great work it just 
it feels like it's worth it in the long run. Um, so yeah, I guess my last question to transition a little bit before ending is on education. Because you also mentioned, which I was really surprised about, that out of the 27 kids, you were the only one interested in doing agriculture. And that trend's significantly gotten worse. Um, I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast. Me, alongside majority of America, has been so disconnected from this. With the advancement of technology, with the advancement of social media, and people just, when you become TikTok stars and YouTube stars and whatnot, um, how do we help incentivize, maybe that's not even the right word, how do we help educate and get the younger audiences and generations excited about agriculture and especially with this new wave of regenerative agriculture? That's a great question. And I've been asking myself the same thing. You know, I've spoken at <clears throat> conferences all over the United States. I've been on 20, 30 podcasts. Um, I've done a lot of one-on-one -on -one Twitter DMs with, with young people wanting to get started and, and do what we do. And so that's with this new ranch that we just bought, we have enough open space to be able to host some folks. And so that's the thing that we're looking at, trying to put together a, a curriculum and a time frame of like a, an intensive, regenerative um, cattle ranching school to where, you know, let's say you put a handful of people together and you have room to put them up. And the people that are that are serious about the nuts and bolts of it, we can go through and start it, you know, uh, funding assistance with new farmers and ranchers. And we can work right through acquiring cattle, uh, developing a grazing plan, relationships with um, landowners, because that's the biggest thing, right, is so the majority of our ground is going to turn over within the next five to 10 years because our Farmers and ranchers are aging out and fewer and fewer and fewer of their kids want anything to do with it because it's too damn hard. And our conventional education system has told all of our kids, go get a college education and go get an office job, right? Not stay here and continue to feed America or, you know, the, the terrible phrase, feed the world, which we should probably concentrate on America first because there's food deserts all over this country and we're... We are overfed and nutritionally starved everywhere in this country. You know, you can't, you can't take your welfare and buy grass-fed, grass-finished beef that is, that is um, custom processed. You have to go buy beef that's USDA processed, which is going to cost you more money. But you can take your welfare and you can buy your fudge rounds at the convenience store, right? That's broken. That's wrong. That needs to stop is really what that needs to be. Like if you're going to get government assistance, you have to eat something that has nutrition, not just something that tastes good. And you can eat something that has to be cooked and prepared so you can teach your sons and daughters how to cook, not how to put a pizza in the oven. Um, but that's a whole nother deal, right? Uh, but but we're we're looking at seriously putting together one, maybe two schools where we can get 10, 12, 15 people out, make it worth their time and make it worth our while for them to come out and get this true uh, education that they can then take the nuts and bolts of and, and put them to practice wherever they are. Because like I said, so many of the books that are written right now and, and some of the YouTube stars, 
their practices are based where they are. And if, if you go into the prescriptive nuts and bolts of it and you have somebody who tries it and fails, then you just lost them. You lost another generation of regenerative farmers and ranchers because so much of it comes from learning the resiliency that you have to have to then implement and adapt and overcome and implement, adapt and overcome, you know, because because I'm telling you plan A, B, C, D, E, and F aren't going to work. And you're going to be so far deep in trying to force them that you're, you want to cry, or maybe you do cry, but you have to be prepared to just skip all the way to, to F because the, the first plans just don't work. And that's, that's, one thing that rural America and farm and ranch kids don't have a choice whether they learn that or not, because it's like sink or swim. It's like, figure it out. I, you, I, I've got to go do this. You got to figure this out. If you're still struggling with it when I get back, then I'll help you. But I got to run and stop the cows from running down the county road while you figure out what you need to do here. If you're still trying to figure it out when I get back, then I'll help you. I'm not being mean. I'm just that that's a higher priority than whatever this little problem is that you have right here. And so the amazing thing with that is then when I send these kids out to the world, you know, our daughter's 22 and um, there isn't much that kid can't do. And her tolerance for bullshit is pretty short um, <laughs> because that's she gets that from me. It's like life is too short for me to deal with your drama. I understand that you're a valley girl and mommy and daddy did everything for you and you broke a nail and you're having a complete meltdown, but we have work to do. So you need to check your shit and get back to work. You know, she's, she's a registered nurse. She, she's, a, she's a fantastic human being, but she is her father's daughter and she is tough as nails and there's no bullshit. And that's one of the things I love about her and one of the things I struggle with when we're together, because she's no bullshit either then. So, but, um, and then my, our son just turned 16, just got his driver's license. He irrigated our home place this all summer, this summer, you know, and we had a couple of wrecks, right? But he learned from that and then learned some skills on how to not do that or how to repair that next time without having to involve me. And that's that, this, that, that critical thinking skills and that problem solving that when mommy and daddy do everything for you, you never learn. And so then you send them to school and you expect the teachers to teach that. They're not to do that. The teachers are just preparing you to pass standardized tests to pass you on to the next thing, right? Then you go to college and your professors, as long as the college is getting paid, they're not going to teach you that either, right? Whatever, pass, fail. We don't care. We're getting paid no matter what. So then you go out to work and you have these employers that are like, well, what do you know how to do? And they're like, well, I have a degree in liberal arts. Well, okay, so what can you do? Uh, I'm really good at posting on social media. I can do TikTok dances, you know. Um, whereas my kids are like, I can, I can change a tire on my car. I can change the oil. I can weld. I can run a tractor. I can make a bottle and feed a bottle calf. I can teach this calf how to suck from its mom. I can fix fence, whatever. Um, and those are just basic skills that then enables you to have the self-confidence to do something bigger and better. And 
that is where we failed in this country by not letting kids ride in the back of a truck, making everybody wear a helmet. I mean, because it used to be that if you did dumb shit, you would die. And that was just evolution of the species. Now, all of the people that should have died are still alive and they're having babies and they're repeating the same thing. Um, whereas, I mean, like we do dumb shit and there's like, <laughs> there's, you know, you have, um, there's consequences for dumb shit. And, uh, I'm a perfect example of that and, and the resiliency that comes with it. So. Well, thank you, Jason, for, for coming on here. This was great. Um, I guess, is there any last comments or anything that you would like to plug? Well, number one, uh, I have lots of Regenesance swag that I love to wear around. Everyone asks me, what in the hell does that mean? So that's something I think that we need to get back to because it is truly the renaissance of regenerative ag. Because it, it's not the way that we used to do it. We had to do it that way. We had to do rotational grazing. We had to treat the soil right. Otherwise, our family starved to death. So this is the, the re re renaissance of going back to what we had to do. We knew we had to do before big pharma, big ag, big, you know, big equipment, all that stuff got on board. So let's get back to there and let's share that with everyone. Let's share the bounty of knowledge and the bounty of health with everyone. Don't just keep it to yourself. I love the homesteaders, I love that. You know, they're building their own citadels and all of that stuff. But when the shit hits the fan, if your neighbors aren't of like mind, I'm going to come steal all your shit. You know, because it's one of those things is without a community that you can defend each other and take care of one another and look out for one another. That's really what it's about. It's about community. So we need to get back to that building that community of these regeneratively truly holistically minded communities and share the skills, knowledge, food with each other. So we don't all have to be experts in everything. We can be experts in some things and share that and barter that with our, our broader communities. So that's, that's the biggest thing that I've been doing a lot of bartering, trading labor for beef, you know, trading farm work for vegetables, all of those kinds of things to be able to, strengthen those communities i agree uh and then what, what's your twitter B, I, I don't beef bees bitcoin I guess beef bees bitcoin highly suggest you give them a follow um thank you again jason well so and then we just started a new instagram account that is rick ranch's ranch camp that's for this new ranch that we bought where we're going to be doing airbnbs wedding venues that's where we're going to look to do our ranch school um, there's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful place. We're in the middle of cleaning it up, painting and, and, and modernizing it. And so I'm super excited about that. I have my own hay barn. There's a huge hay barn. I've been stacking hay in. I'm so excited about that because I've been stacking hay outside for almost 20 years now. So now that I have a place to do that, it's makes me smile every time I do it. Well, then I highly suggest all the listeners to follow his Instagram too. I mean, as you can tell from this whole episode, he's got a wealth of knowledge to share. Um, so, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, man. Keep up the good work.